I'm your host, Valerie Powell, and welcome to another installment of the Fate Podcast. Today we have two guests ready to chat with us, Jenna Fry and Ellen Mueller. I'm going to let them each introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about, you know, where they're teaching, what they're teaching, and a little bit about the kind of artwork that they create. And why don't we start with Jenna? Sure. Hi. Thanks, Valerie, for having me. My name is Jenna Fry, and I teach at the Maryland Institute College of Art, which we call MICA. Uh, I'm a, a full-time faculty member in the foundation department, and I'm pretty dedicated to teaching at that level. I teach all the nerdy stuff, uh, anything that has to do with the computer. Um, that's me. I teach design classes. I teach... Um, if it's Adobe, I teach it. Um, I also teach a class called Epic Fail, which is about learning to take risks and failure. And that's a hybrid class between graphic design and interdisciplinary sculpture. Uh, my own work is largely centered around play. So that's kind of the thing that unites all the different things I do. I do community work. I also do design work. I also make games and anything that I can make from my hands to the computer to back to the world that's something i'm interested in doing terrific great, great. Um, and i'm so how how about you ellen yeah uh, thanks for having me valerie i am currently uh, an assistant professor at west virginia wesleyan college and i teach both foundations and intermediate classes uh, and those consist of uh, a lot of technology and art that sort of straddles boundaries my personal work uh, oscillates between a bunch of different media. So I'm working in things like video, performance, drawing, community engagement, and anything else that pops up along the way. And the that I focus on is the idea of uh, the intersection between capitalism, uh, the environment, and our daily lives. So there you go. Oh, Hello. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm not actually hearing everybody really well. Are you guys still there? Yeah, I'm, I'm still here. here. I, I'm. It's fading in and out for me too. But I, I noticed yeah. that as well. Okay, so that's happening. <laughs> well, now, now it seems okay. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, maybe it's maybe it's good. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll just proceed onward and um, and sort of try to do our best in terms of um, the technology and the hearing of things, which is sort of ironic. Well, that's, you know, those of us that teach technology know that's how things go. You always have to be ready for nothing to ever work the easy way it works for you the hundred times you do it before you show somebody else how to do it. So that's right. It's just how it works. Right. Which I guess is a good segue into, you know, a couple of the things that, that sort of stood out to me about what you guys are interested in, in your own practice in terms of teaching and thinking about, you know, process and thinking about getting students excited you know about what they're doing and and Jenna you mentioned a class called epic fail which I'm really interested in how, how do you implement failure in, into your classes and sort of make that make that fun it's hard as it turns out artists don't like failing <laughs> they <laughs> would prefer to get it right every time um, as would I so part of I think the way that I embrace failure um, is to model it. So I tend to be really honest with my students about risks that I'm taking, whether it's a software risks or the procedural risks, you know, I'll be real honest about, hey, I don't maybe know how to do this. Do you want to learn how to do it with me? Um, so I'm modeling for students 
that process of learning something from how do I do this to um, I feel a little bit more confident and maybe I'm going to fall uh, on my butt a couple times or a hundred times. So that's part of it is like modeling that behavior. Um, the other way is that I really involve the students right away in terms of how do we define little fail versus epic fail. So a little fail is like, I didn't prepare for class or I, I let, you know, I didn't leave enough time to 3d print 20 of these cats. Um, <laughs> for example, you know, uh, that's a, that's a little fail and we want to avoid those epic fails are like, I want to solve the problem of, um, being able to pray in public more easily. That's a real thing. Um, one of my students, um, who happens to be Muslim was trying to figure out how to fit prayer into her life. That's a huge problem to tackle in 15 weeks. Epic. That's the kind of thing <laughs> wow. you can epically fail at. Um, and I, I encourage that take a huge risk, take some, something that you might never be able to solve and let's just chip, you know, chip away at it a little bit at a time. So I think the real thing that I do is just relentless encouragement. <laughs> so um, I just keep believing that students can do it, whether they believe it or not, and then eventually they do it. <laughs> and um, that's part of what we get used to in that class is I give them, I put them in all kinds of uh, interesting, playful scenarios where maybe we play games or we built with blocks or different we have smaller tasks that we try to iterate around and where it's really is okay to fail um, and I make that very clear with my grading system and with my my advocacy of their trial and error and that encourages them to to try things that they might not really believe they can do until they prove to themselves that they can Oh, wow. That sounds really exciting. I, I want to take that class for sure. <laughs> I think that's what I, I want everyone to be like, yeah, I want to take that class. So it's taught in the fabrication studio. So there's the digital fabrication studio. So there's a lot of room for failure, learning the CNC, learning the laser cutter, learning 3D printing. All of those things are all failures all the time. So um, it's a it's a good space to fail for sure. Terrific, terrific. And so what about you, Ellen? I, I know that you do a lot of community engagement with your courses, and how do you, it seems like that could be sort of murky and, and challenging to take students out of the classroom and sort of some students could maybe shy away from that or it could be a little daunting for, for some. How, how do you sort of handle those, those kind of challenges? Oh, absolutely. I think I take a sort of similar approach in that I do talk about working small to big. So we don't leap right into community engagement. That's going to be um, something we do towards the end of the semester usually. And so in class, during class, we get a lot of those little fails out of the way. And um, we get really, really comfortable with the idea of the do-over. And in fact, by around halfway through the semester, I don't even have to really prompt the students anymore to do over. A lot of times I'll be walking around and they'll say, do over? I'm like, yeah, do over. And, and then they, <laughs> <laughs> and they, they do it themselves. So they get, it takes a little bit. It's definitely tricky at the start of the semester. People are really resistant to the idea, but then they come around to it, especially as they see everyone engaging in that sort of practice. And so that that's sort of the, a general overarching approach and then after that as, as it gets more situational and we are working with very specific community members everything sort of goes out the window and we have to address each situation individually in some situations 
failure is okay. And in other ones, I might have to swoop in a little bit more to help um, make sure that the relationship is preserved because we're working with community members. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and that and that's definitely tricky when that happens. But I think it's still valuable to have to have that in the classroom, even if it has to be sort of a different a different approach than just all out let it loose fail no matter what you know kind of right <laughs> <laughs> well and I'm, I'm curious about that that kind of you know how do you maintain some some kind of a balance between the sort of free-for-all fail do whatever try stuff and then at some point having this thing that might look like art, you know, at some point having some kind of a product instead of just like a pile of feelings or whatever. Um, because I think the, the process is so important, but I think the students also want to have that, that pretty thing, you know, at, at the end of the semester, at the end of the product. So how do you, how do you do that? Oh, definitely. Well, and I think, the urge to have the pretty thing is so strong at the foundations level that I don't have to, I, or at least I haven't recently had to nurture that a whole lot. Um, (laughs) It goes the other way. No, totally. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I do let them know from the get go, whatever project we're undertaking that at the end of the project, we're always going to be evaluating, critiquing, reflecting on, did they do well with their subject form content and context. And those four things are always on the board, and they know that from the start. So right. they'll be that's, that's great. reflecting on that. I Yeah, I, I love that, actually. My approach is sort of, I'm pretty transparent with the students about the difference between um, being an art student and being an artist, or being a design student and being a designer, um, <laughs> and that there are things that make sense in the classroom that, that don't apply in the, in the real world and vice versa. So... For me as an educator, the process is so much more important than the product because the process is the time when I get to observe them working and I get to learn about how they're translating what they think they're supposed to be learning. (laughs) And the product doesn't always tell me that. The product might tell me something, a very different story. So I am very upfront with my students that I want to see them working and I want to see it develop so that I know how to help them. And they... Yeah, the foundation students don't need any help making things look perfect. (laughs) They need the opposite help. They need a little loosening up sometimes. But also in my evaluation processes with students where like they'll, they write their own self-evaluations and we talk about it. A lot of times we talk about presenting a process rather than presenting a product. So epic fail, this happens a lot where, you know, how do you document all of the hard work you've done failing, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. Well, some of that is about, keeping good records. And sometimes that's a written documentation. Sometimes there are pictures of sketchbooks and things like that, which are often very valuable to people outside of your own culture. So, you know, employers and people who don't maybe know a lot about the classes you're taking, seeing sketches is really helpful for for those communities. So that's sort of how I focus on artwork that is process oriented and isn't something beautiful at the end. I mean, something visually beautiful, you know. Right. Right. So let's document that pile of feelings uh, into <laughs> a pile of blog posts or something. <laughs> well, sure. And, and, and I think making the process valuable, you know, and sort of elevating it um, seems seems like a commonality that, that you guys both share in terms of your teaching approach. 
Um, and so in terms of grading, does that become really hairy in terms of assessment? Because how do you assess a process and, and how do you how do you go about doing that? Well, I do it with the self-evaluation. So um, and that's I frankly, I ask them tell me about the process of learning. I mean, I don't say it in those words. I say it in other words like, tell me about the time it took for you to come up with this idea and did it take longer to actualize and what did you learn from it? Or sometimes one of my favorite questions is, why do you think I assigned this? Oh, <laughs> um, nice. And, and I often get really telling results from that question. Uh, and sometimes it's very practical, like you wanted me to learn Illustrator, guilty as charged. Um, and then sometimes they really get it and they're like, I can tell you wanted me to take a technical skill and figure out a bunch of different ways I could apply it conceptually. And I'm like, all right, teaching done, you know? So um, I really do <laughs> ask the students to, to like tell me what they think they've learned. And I find that that's a superb tool for assessment. I do almost oh, a, a really similar approach to, I bring in a, uh, at the end, they're doing written reflections, and almost always I'm asking them, what did you feel worked well? What didn't work? How could you improve it? And then throughout that, I'm also asking them to specifically address their subject form, content, and context, and then any other vocabulary or technology that I want them to demonstrate that they truly understood. They have to integrate that into their reflection as well. It yeah, sort of forces great. them to go through that process. Yeah. How well, and do you find it helpful whenever you're done with a new project that you've done in a class for the first time? Do you find that you write down a lot of things yourself and reflect on your process as an instructor? Oh my do gosh, I, do I do what I do and not do what I say? No, because <laughs> I know I do, so I just wanted to see if that was happening. I definitely do. Like as through all the steps of the process of the assignment, especially if it's a brand new one, I have a running list that I'm just constantly adding to as I observe them, where they struggle, where it's too easy, and then keeping notes so the next time I do the assignment, I can tweak it as needed. I do the ball of feelings approach. So. <laughs> I was going to say, I do the ball of feelings approach. That's why I mentioned the ball of feelings. I, I mean, I, yeah, oh, yeah. Sometimes it oh. takes me a really long time to process what I think I've taught, you know, so. Right. It's hard to kind of look back or, you know, I'll have an idea that I, oh, I, I really should reflect on this and, and write about this and then I'll get really busy. It's sort of hard to get that in, into the habit, but I, I definitely want to make a, a better effort of doing that. I also actually bring it up really in a forward manner with the students after the projects are done. And I don't do it every time, but if there's a particularly hairy assignment that just didn't click or didn't work the way I'd hoped, sometimes I'll just be really upfront with them and say, so what, where did this go off the rails? Where did you lose engagement? How did this turn into a hot mess? You know, and, yeah. <laughs> and I, that's great. Yeah, I think they really appreciate that approach because the honesty that I get back uh, seems to be a lot less emotionally charged, like what you might find from an angry evaluator at the end of the semester versus somebody who's like, oh, you really want to know how to do this better. I'm going to tell right. you some like actual hard facts about what didn't work. And that's really useful. Yeah, I think letting the students know that you're open to that feedback is it's huge for them, right? I mean, and it's back to that what we talked about earlier, modeling the process of learning something new. So as educators, our new projects are us learning new things about how to 
teach a group of people how to see what we're seeing and, and make what we think we're trying to make together. And we don't always get that right on the first time. It almost never happens. Or mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. so important for students to recognize that I'm making something too all the time. I'm, I'm making projects to make with my students and I need feedback just like they need feedback. And I think you're so right about the honesty. I mean, not, not to be Pollyanna, but I do think that most creative people respond really well to things that are mm-hmm. honest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they know, <laughs> they do. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Well, and do you find that with this process driven sort of curriculum and, and trial and error and, and all of that, do you find that students are learning a lot about how to research on their own? I think I still find that I have to prompt them often. <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah. to do the re- like some of the more um, technical research, like actually visit the library or actually, um, <laughs> you know, like, I think they feel that they're researching, but yeah. you know, yes. like when it comes to actually, actually, like you had mentioned with uh, showing sketches and showing things, I still feel like I have to often hold them accountable to that to make sure it gets done. Yeah. I think that's very accurate. Um, I'm always surprised at that they forget about Google, (laughs) you know? Um, So one of the things that I I will always do in my technical classes is when a student asks me, like, how do you add two shapes together in Illustrator? (laughs) I go to their computer and I type, how do you add two shapes together into Google? And then I press enter for them and I walk away. Um, And, you know... um, they, and, you know, we joke about it, but they forget, like they know to look at Google to like find out what movie, you know, Christian Bale was in that they can't place, but they don't think to look for software help or for other kinds of research help. So I definitely, um, I'm excited to see different libraries approaches to helping studio artists beyond um, re- you know, just reading research, but a lot of libraries are shifting into studio research in really, really exciting, interesting ways, like crossing over with makerspaces. And I think that's so awesome because when this gets back to helping, how do you teach students learn how to fail? Because it's like if you can put them into like a white lab coat, like they think they're a scientist. Well, scientists fail all the time. That's just part of how they learn things. So it's like if you're in that headspace of researching or experiencing experimenting that's a different headspace than like I'm trying to make this thing out of my soul come out nice you know Um, (laughs) it's a lot less pressure so we'll deal with the soul later and uh, uh, that's something I think research actually can really help it can be quite a relief to students when they understand how to make it work for them as opposed to like oh I have to go to the library and fill out four note cards you know they (laughs) you know which is that's deep for some of them. They're, they're like, that's how they've been trained in K-12. Oh. And they're just like, you know, but really libraries are amazing. Absolutely. And they're a place and they're a building and you can yes. go inside. You, know? you have access to like, at our school, uh, you know, we have access to, you know, original Albers interaction of color, oh. the prints, the actual, you can touch them with your gloved hand, you know? So, oh, wow. yeah. So it's, you know, but they don't know to be excited about that yet till a faculty member kind of shows them how, um, that it's a passionate project. Well, and I always like to tell the students that you will be amazed at how excited the librarians get when you come because you're yeah. an art student <laughs> right. and the stuff that you look up is so much more fun than all the stuff that they are looking up for other students all day long. So 
that's good advice. That's yeah. I'm, I'm at an all art school, but that is, I think, very applicable advice to people at at normal libraries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our librarians are just excited if anybody talks to them, you know? <laughs> and they're wonderful, you know. Oh, absolutely. Well, and are, are you guys finding that it's, you know, as you've been teaching that students know more about technology or they know more about working or process or how, how have you seen that sort of evolve and, and shift as you've been teaching? Well, I, I say this line a lot. So if anybody has heard me say this before, I apologize. But what, what, I, what I always say is they, I think the students are really cons- consumer literate. They're very good. They're brand conscious but they're digitally illiterate so they they know the brand names of things like someone has told them that photoshop is what makes digital paintings or something like that or that maybe solidworks is what you make an engineering model in or something to that effect so they they have these sort of this brand awareness but they don't actually know the difference between an editable file and a shareable file or or why a, um, a three gigabyte file won't attach to their email you know <laughs> <laughs> or why a jpeg is horrendous for print you know they, they don't um, they don't know how it works because they've always grown up with an interface whereas um, many of their teachers who you know of a certain generation, we watch that curtain go up. And mm-hmm. so we, we understand what the visual interface is a representation of, and that they don't have that background. So like they can text and walk at the same time, but that doesn't mean that they totally understand how a computer works. So they get just as frustrated as anybody else learning new software because they, they don't necessarily understand how it works. Now they learn fast because they, they do have a very, they're like culturally comfortable with it. So you don't have to get over that with the digital natives as they call them, you know, but it's, um, there is huge literacy issues from my perspective. I don't know, Ellen, how it seems to you at your school. I 100% agree. I, I find that in general, everyone expects them to be, to hit the ground running because yeah. everybody's yeah. walking around with this smartphone. But the, the fact of the matter is, I think that almost creates an extra obstacle for them to get over because they have sort of a little bit of shame that goes along with that. They're, they are a little yes. bit embarrassed that they don't already know. And so uh, we have That's to right. deal with that and uh, sort of equalizing the playing field for everybody. So everybody feels okay not knowing, and then we go from there. Right. I, I think you really hit the nail on the head with the shame factor. They they feel that consumer pressure super hard. So they feel that, like, I I need to know all of these things before I can do anything. And that makes teaching technology, it's like a ton of pressure on them. And so part of, I think, my job is the, like, you know, digital Zen instructor is to be like, this technology works for you, guys. You tell the computers what to do, you know. And if, <laughs> and if you don't want to use a computer to make your thing, don't use it, you know. Um, and that's part of what I think a studio art course about digital technology is what it should always be about is the artist's ideas and how can the technology inform you and support your ideas as a maker and vice versa. But uh, so many times they just feel like, oh, I, I don't understand this. And then they feel stupid because they feel like they can't get it fast enough because they've internalized that digital native mythology too. Mm-hmm. Totally. 
Totally. Well, and there's there's an idea that if it doesn't come quickly, then it's just never going to come. Right. And then they just need to like rage quit and just you know <laughs> yeah. leave, you yeah. know, because it's not right. happening in this like quick immediacy. And 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 it seems like in found foundations, and of course, when you're talking about technology, it seems like it's so important with this idea of of risk taking and sort of de shaming of everyone that there be a really safe environment for for creative making and how do you guys feel like you create that kind of space where it's really okay and how do you feel like students can can kind of tap into that from you know the very first week of classes well i like to integrate a lot of play and actually getting up and moving around and being yep. physically <laughs> silly um because immediately if if for example we do some sort of improv exercise and um, you have to strike a pose with your body or something along those lines, or you have to race while holding a, a stick that we found on the ground or something, you know, something that is absurd. Then everybody is absurd. We're all absurd together. Here we go. You know, and it, yep. and it <laughs> love it. And, and that way we don't have to be too preoccupied with how we think everybody else sees us because we just saw each other at our most ridiculous and then we can <laughs> move on from there. I think that's a hundred percent. Yeah. I, I do a similar, um, yeah, like you're just talking about community and team building activities are important, especially in those kind of situations. Um, but also that sort of dealing in absurdity. So I, I realized maybe two or three years into teaching technology that it was much more effective if my demos were like the worst looking things ever. So like if I could make the silliest, Photoshop composition ever and just to show the technical skills but to like just make it really ugly and or uh -huh. really funny like they pay more attention to that and then it like gives them it lets them relax a little bit rather than like me trying to show them all of the like fancy tricks I can do that I just practiced before class so that I would look like I can do <laughs> fancy tricks you know um so <laughs> that that's a big thing is the yeah the like getting to the absurdity and I totally agree also about the physicality in technical classes so I love the idea about anything that gets them moving around the classroom and not tied to their and their screen because it's it's very disempowering really it's just like um, and so I I do similar things like that where it, as many games I always try to start the class off with some kind of a game that's relative you know conceptually or whatever and then sometimes it actually is a direct like I I've started to teach vector drawing with like wooden tiles so we'll like make designs with tiles first with our hands and that like geometric tiles and then those are that gives you a reason to learn how to use the pen tool because it's like very easy to see that a triangle has three points and then I can measure and draw that in the um, you know in the virtual space. So I, I think as many times as you can get them into their hands and into their bodies with any art and also technology, it's good. Definitely. Absolutely. I'm so excited that you guys are having this conversation. So in terms of play, because I think that that sounds like a really important aspect of, of what you guys are both excited about doing yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of technology, which can sound really crusty and kind of annoying, you know, that, yeah. oh, we have to talk about technology or we have to sit in front of the computer or something of that sort. But but kind of igniting this, this element of play, how do you feel like students buy into that? I mean, have you had moments where that's just really failed or do you have any tips for somebody who's a little timid about saying everybody stand up and like do this thing you know without feeling just su super cheesy well it is super cheesy so you just have to like 
live it. You know, um, (laughs) you have to just embody the cheese. Embrace the cheese, Um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I do think that students have to be taught how to play, just like they have to be taught everything else. And so they've been taught how to not play for a long time. And uh, a big hurdle that I think we're up against is this this thing that play can't be serious, you know, like, or that if we're being silly, we're not really learning. It's not real if it's not hard and awful, which is just like, I don't know, that's some like Puritan shit. And like, I just, we just don't stuff, sorry, um, that, you know, we don't need it. And, you know, it's, it's just uh, as many times as I can say to my students, like, take it easy on yourself. I do. And also, I think educational games can really help. So there's so many, I would love to talk to anybody at length about different educational games that I bring into class to play that are like games that already exist that you can play with a group of people and that get them maybe drawing or, or building or something like that. And often they come from just, you know, like educational toy stores and things like that, that I'm sure you all frequent all the time, just like I do. Uh, of course, for, but, for real, yes. But it's, uh, that, that helps. I think, like, I'm sort of like a prop comic of teaching, you know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I'm, I feel real good about that. I, you know, I feel like, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not the carrot top, but like, I'm like a, you know, like a, a funnier prop comic. So, um, <laughs> and I, I need that stuff. I, I need that to like, get have a thing to show them to do um but yeah it's just practicing and also for faculty because not all faculty like to make asses of themselves you know i i do i am like kind of i have a little performer in me so i that's fun for me you know um but anybody can do it you know you just gotta take a deep breath and be the the silly one first oh definitely and i think too something that i found useful when doing these silly team building what have you's is to give them a couple rules because they can feel like they have permission to be silly because they are meeting the expectations of this exercise, whatever it is. They can react against those, and it's it's not that they are being silly. They've been instructed to be silly. It's sort of right. permission giving in yes. that sense. Yeah. That's great. Well, nice. Well, so do, do you guys want to share some practical ways in which you do that, you know, in terms of um, some takeaways for the hundreds and thousands of listeners I'm sure we'll be having, it'll be sweeping the nation shortly, (laughs) and in terms of just some some practical ways that that you go about doing this, or what are the games that you bring in, or the props that you use, yeah. One of my favorite games is called the Extraordinaire's Design Studio, and that game is, you have to do a little finagling to play it with a group, but teachers can figure that stuff out. So essentially the idea is that there's a bunch of character cards, and they don't have any writing on them. They're just illustrations of characters doing things in their day, and they're they're like adorable, like like a giant circus lady, and there's an astronaut, and you know, like there's they're beautiful illustrations. Then you pick an object card, and that object will say something like oh, a water receptacle, or a remote control, or a place to sit and you have to design that object for that character so um, what it teaches students to do is to look for visual cues because they have to read visually about the character and what the character wants to do and then they as a team come up with like they actually draw out or like make a stick figure design um, about you know what the object would be for this character and then they present it to the class and you know every it's like a millennial game so everybody wins you know <laughs> there's like you know, 
best presentation or best cool feature. Um, but they it takes like 15 minutes. I've played this game online. I've played this game in person a bunch of times. Um, I often play this game as an introduction to like product design projects but that's a really good one um, and that same company makes another one of my favorites which is called the Rory's Story Cubes and those are basically like illustrative dice um, and they have like different pictures on them and you roll them out and they give you a narrative so it's a great prompt for like a video assignment or um, any kind of like a series or something like that because it's it gives you like you know stuff that happens and then you have to interpret it or whatever so um i love both of those those games a lot and i really really love having wooden blocks around um, i won't talk for too long about my obsession with 18th century reproductive blocks uh, their reproduction <laughs> blocks um, but they are amazing the connection between the original kindergarten and art school the big you know the Bauhaus is pretty amazing but we have some reproductions of those at our school that i was using most of last year and um, it took a little while to get students into play playing with blocks but once they were into it they were really into it so those blocks have basically point lines and planes um for like every shape and you can make all kinds of stuff with it so they've been really really good for making designs and then translating that into digital stuff cool wow nice yeah uh i would say one that i can think of off the top of my head that i use a lot in a lot of different classes is a brainstorming game and so i separate the class into two groups and this is where the stick comes in <laughs> and we go outside and we assign one person from each team to be a recorder and i give them a broad overarching subject like windows and from there they basically race and so one person has a stick on each team they race to some random selected point and they have to touch it or you know bang the stick on it or something like that and then come back and as soon as they are about to hand off the stick they have to shout out something associated with that overarching subject and what we're doing is generating a big pool of um, options or ideas that they can then make thumbnails off of etc so that we end up with this really large pool of brainstormed ideas for their projects and I love that yeah it goes really fast all of it takes maybe one or two minutes to get through both teams running back and forth handing off the stick and by the by the time we're done we have you know 10 to 20 depending on how many students there are new ideas to work and it it, it's nice because it illustrates to them that they don't need to labor so intensively when they're brainstorming. <laughs> you know? right. That's true, though. Right. They get yeah. so attached to their ideas. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And it, it helps them lose that preciousness. It shows them that, that it can be done very quickly. And it's fun and silly. And so we might do that three or four times. And that, that pool of ideas gets larger and larger. It gets them on their feet. It's, a, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, I love that. Totally yes. going to do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take all of these ideas. I really appreciate it. And I'll be implementing them into the WASH program, no problem. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, sort of in, in, in wrapping things up, I, I wish we could just stay on the phone all night long and, and chat. But I, um, I I definitely, you know, I'm curious. You guys are, are both really talented and, and really skilled in what, what you do and, and seem really happy and, like, genuinely excited about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, how do you maintain that during just um, juggling being an artist and being a professor and being a human being and, you know, all, all, of, all of that stuff? 
taking showers and whatever. I mean, <laughs> just in terms of like time management, you know, because I, I think it's easy to be, you know, in, in this community and teach foundations and sort of feel like, eh, meh, yeah. it's not really hard. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, I think you hit on a lot of the things that I do. I think time management's huge for me. I, I am really greedy with my, my time. And so I say no to a lot of things. And how, uh, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how are you allowed not to do this? But there actually was an article on the Chronicle. It was like one of their blog posts or something where this woman wrote down tips for saying no. And I have that bookmarked. I can send it to you, Valerie. And it's, nice. And you can share it with the podcast. But it's beautiful. It has like various phrases for d- different scenarios for how to politely and kindly say no to people. And I use it all the time. It- it's really something that I rely on heavily. And uh, in terms of staying excited, I I really get a lot of energy from doing new things. And um, I try to, every time I teach a class, do something different from the last time I did. So anytime I bring a new project into the classroom, that I get a lot of energy from just doing that. I try to keep it fresh. I love that. Um, so I don't know how to say no. I do practice <laughs> in the mirror sometimes, but it normally comes out as, okay, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> So what my process is, is that I, um, when I come to something like fall break or spring break or summer break, I rest and, um, I sort of look at it like my semesters are these like sprints that I do. (laughs) And then after that I rest and I like, I really give myself permission to just unplug and, and just be a human being. I also, um, you know, I have a, my husband is really supportive. I will say that that's a big part of how I'm able to give as much of myself as I am to my school and my students is because I share responsibility, the life responsibilities with a very supportive, dedicated partner. So that is a huge help. Thank you, honey, uh, if you're listening. <laughs> so, But uh, also... I agree. I change things up a lot. Um, and I, I do that to keep myself interested and to keep things feeling fresh. And, you know, part of it, it's not really a secret. It's just that my students are really like working with them. It gives me life. It really does. They are, they always bring something different to how I think I understand something. They come up with the most amazing ideas. And I honestly, like at the end of the day, the burnout is fixed. That's what fixes the burnout for me is that the students they really do nurture a, a lot for me. Like they, they give, they teach me as much as I teach them. And, and I'm really grateful for that for sure. So, uh, but I do agree that I think not over committing is something I really want to work on this year. And also working on just being a little bit more mindful about what my limitations really are versus what I w- wish that they were. <laughs> I wish I could say yes to everything. Cause I am, like a legitimately excitable person and I like projects Uh and I want to work with people and I want to make the world a better place and yeah, let's do it, you know, but to do that, I, I know that I have to, um, I have to take care of myself. So that's, um, it's something that I'm working on for sure is doing things that bring me a lot of joy. And so I can put that joy back out in the world. Well, I think you bring up two really important things I should be upfront and honest about, because I think that's part of why work-life balance is so hard for so many academics and artists is because I don't know if we're always honest about how (laughs) our lives 
actually are. Yeah. And I, I also have a super supportive spouse. I'm so, yeah. so lucky in that way. And I don't make art during the year. Like I, I do not make it during the semesters. I make yeah. it on breaks and I feel like I should be really honest about that. Cause I think sometimes the idea that we're supposed to balance it all and constantly be doing it all is not helpful to yeah. us. You know, I agree. So, yeah. I have to compartmentalize. I, I really do. And I need a, a lot of routine, which is, of course, why I like teaching. Um, yeah. I need a lot more routine than I, I want to need to be creative. But I agree with you. During the year, my creative project is my coursework. Yep. And I, I work really hard to make those classes presentable art pieces. <laughs> and then I, I, you know, when I have... I had my sabbatical, I did a lot of work. And then when I have, you know, summer breaks, I have time to, to learn new things and try stuff out. But I, I agree with you that it's really important mm-hmm. to be honest about that. Balance for me is I'm looking at it as a much more, I'm not looking at it like week to week or day to day. It's much more about like a yearly balance. Yep. Definitely. Absolutely. No, I, I, I very much appreciate that clarification because it can be really intense to think, oh, I'm yeah. supposed to be in the studio and read the New York Times and inspire <laughs> students and mow the grass and brush my hair and like all these things oh. are supposed to happen. I will you also know? say like delivery groceries changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> it is totally worth seven ninety five for me for a peapot to deliver my groceries. Nice. So um <laughs> Um, you take your help where you can get it, you know, exactly. uh, very grateful that I can afford to do that. <laughs> well, and, and you guys are both involved in fate and have been doing various things. And I, I'm curious, you know, in terms of work-life balance and sort of choosing what you're committed to and things, you know, what, what is it about fate that you feel like has, has been something, you know, worth your time or, or whatever? Well, I thought I, I, spend time on fate because I feel like I get a lot back from it as well. So when I go to the conferences, I am constantly writing down new ideas. I I get so much from the other conference goers when I go. Um, So that's why I I spend time with it. Yeah, I I agree. I think um, I am genuinely academically and educationally interested in the basics um, and what it means to know something at a fundamental level. And so being able to talk to other educators who value that and don't think of it as like the default department. Mm -hmm. um, I relish any opportunity to talk to people who agree with me about that (laughs) because I love people that agree with me. So, um, but that's the thing that I think a lot of us fight in our own schools is like the culture around foundation and the expectations around a foundation education. And I do really believe in it. I, I think it's changing and I think it has to change because the way that people learn and the way that people apply knowledge is changing. But I think that most of us still want sort of a home or a core or something that brings us together and is a shared experience. And I think people that teach in that way are nice to be around. So I <laughs> think, and they tend to be friendly and want to talk. Whereas some other conferences looking at you, CAA are not friendly. <laughs> They're right. not friendly. That doesn't mean there's not useful information there. There's plenty of that. There's just uh-huh. not friendly people. <laughs> so it's like, I think when I go to CAA, I, I have to wear a sign that says, I don't need anything from you. It's okay to talk to me. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't need a job. Um, but at, at fate, it's like, you could pretty much pick pick a couch and somebody will talk to you you know and uh and that's 
it's hard out there to make new friends as adults. So I appreciate that. Totally. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's just a much uh, more open and uh, warm environment. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> Definitely. Well, and, and Ellen, I, I want to say last semester you did a regional. Um, you organized a fate regional up where you are in West Virginia. Can you give our listeners maybe some some tips or some feedback on, on how that went or um, if, if they're thinking about putting something together? Absolutely. It was a really great experience. I was really pleased and uh, glad that I took the time to do it because it brought together a lot of different professors, instructors, grad students from the region that I would not have met otherwise. And now we are in touch and new opportunities have blossomed from that networking. And so it was not only great to talk about 4D foundations and this area of research that we were all really enthusiastic about, but also... um, we all grew our network in a really cool way. So yeah. I would say if you have an idea for a regional, you should do it because it's definitely worth the the time, the effort that that it took to, to pull it off. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. And it's so easy. All you do is fill out a form and, you know, email it in and and we, we can definitely help help to make that happen. Well, I wanna thank you guys for your time and and sort of open it up if there are any sort of final thoughts or shout outs of any kind or any sort of closing statements that you guys would like to make. Sure. I'll do a shameless self-promotion. Um, That's beautiful. <laughs> Why <it>. not? <laughs> I just published a book about Yay. 40 foundations. It's with Oxford University Press. It's called Elements and Principles of 40 Art and Design. And if you're looking for just practical exercises and things like that. The book has over a hundred different exercises that can be applied to all different types of time-based media from video, animation, performance, installation, social practice, what have you. So it's a great resource. Go check it out. Yes, and just to sort of add to to that shout out, the book also has some really good tips on critiquing and it's really affordable. I, I was really surprised how affordable it is. Absolutely. That was a big part of why I selected OUP as the publisher, because they're a nonprofit. Their main goal is to get the price down as low as possible, and it's at a really great price. I recommend it. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to put that link up with the uh, we meaning Raymond, who knows how to do fancy <laughs> things. <laughs> we'll have to put that, that up when, when we uh, launch this episode. Oh. Definitely. I don't have a fancy book to um, uh, to plug, but I will get your book and congratulations. Um, oh, thank you. Because I can only imagine the work-life balance it took to get that made. So <laughs> mazel tov. I'm sure that was hard. Um, and I admire you. So uh, I will be speaking at FATE. My presentation at the one coming up is called Control the, the Environment, Not the Student. And um, I'll be talking about ways to bring the sort of maker ethic into the classroom and the ways that the classroom itself can be its own teacher. Um, so if you're looking for very practical ways to get what we call STEAM stuff, science, technology, uh, engineering, art, and math together, I have a lot of examples about how I've brought um, basic electronics into the foundation level and um, some basic digital fabrication. So if you're looking for, and by the way, that's taught with blocks, with those Froebel blocks. So nice. um, if yeah. you're wanting to know the the way that I've brought together building blocks, literally, and um, 
digital building blocks, I'd be happy to talk to you about that at my presentation. Ooh, that Great. sounds fantastic. Yeah. I know. I want to put that in my list of things to, to check out. And it's called Control. It's called Control the Student, not uh, Control the Environment, not the Student. Never mind. Nice. Stay nice, on nice, point, nice. friends. Stay on point. No, well, I probably got distracted because I was thinking of Janet Jackson and her song Control. I appreciate and it just, you. I was imagining you in like a together. Janet Jackson video. Miss so. yes. <laughs> Jackson, if you're nasty. Yeah, I Miss Jackson, it. if you're nasty. Exactly. <laughs> Which I'm sure she's going to be listening to this podcast, yeah. of course. Of course. Thank um, you for all you've done, Janet Jackson. <laughs> yes, we love you. Congratulations on the pregnancy, et cetera. <laughs> Um. <laughs> yep. The panel that I'm on is with Alyssa Armstrong from VCU. Is the uh, <laughs> she's the the coordinator of it. Um, Chris Kanky is on it. Um, oh, great! Another woman I don't know, and then uh, Mitch Goldstein, who I know. So I'm sorry for the woman who I don't know because I haven't met her yet. But I know the other people, so that's exciting because that never happens. So that's cool. awesome. Well, maybe yeah. it's Janet Jackson. You never know. Yes, uh, you know I, I don't think her enough. <laughs> Well, again, I just want to, you know, thank you guys, uh, Jenna Fry and Alan Mueller for being our fabulous guests and really looking forward to seeing you guys at the FATE conference. Awesome. Me too. All right. Thanks thanks a lot. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Thank you, Valerie. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Bye.